0: Talking Books, on News Soap 106 to 108.
1: That if two people want to have two demanding careers, they're going to need help in negotiating those careers as well as uh, family, children. And so one of the advantages of having children a bit later in life is that you have a bit more in the way of financial resources to get some help. So I think postponing having children makes things a bit easier. You're also a little bit further along in your career. You have a little bit more bargaining power with your employer. And so all of that helps.
2: What's in a number? Is there such a thing as mathematical beauty and does every number tell a story? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cal. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, tonight's show is all about numbers, numbers and more numbers. This evening, I've got two hugely thinking and erudite writers for you to meet. One a mathematician and hugely playful sports writer. The other a frank and incredibly wise economist. Alex Bellis unpacks imaginary numbers, negative numbers and the mathematical patterns that pervade everyday life. And Dr. Mara Strober talks married life, household chores, family-friendly politics and her compelling new memoir, Sharing the Work, published by the MIT Press. This is a show about numbers, patterns, prejudices and the mummy penalty. But first, does maths always have to make sense?
0: My name is Alex Bellos. I am the former Guardian and South America correspondent where I wrote the book Futebol, The Brazilian Way of Life, about Brazilian football. I then ghost Pelé's autobiography. When I came back to the UK, I decided to write about massive numbers, and my, my big two numbers books are Alex's Adventures in Numberland and Alex Through the Looking Glass. I've also got coming out a book of puzzles called Can You Solve My Problems? I've written a mass colouring book called Snowflake Seashell Star and recently I've just come out with a kids book which links my kind of love of football and of maths and science called Football School where football explains the world.
2: Really well done on the book Alex it's an extraordinary read it reads almost like a biography of maths and of numbers I'm going to throw you in the deep end there can numbers and maths and all of that type of stuff can it be beautiful?
0: Well, the simple answer to a simple question, I guess, is yes, of course. I think you need to work out, well, what do you mean by being beautiful? So normally when people say something beautiful, it's something incredibly visually attractive and aesthetic. And there's lots of math or mathematically created designs that is beautiful. For example, Islamic geometric design. All the art that you see in every mosque or Islamic sacred space for the last thousand years of kind of beautiful geometric patterns, those can all be constructed just with a ruler and a compass. So that's something visually beautiful, and they're very, very mathematical. In um, snowflake, Seashell Star, my math colouring book, that was a gallery, really, of beautiful images from mathematics, so images that you could look at just for their beauty without really understanding them. But, of course, when you say, is math beautiful, and when a mathematician will say, man, now it's beautiful... They're not really talking about does it look pretty on the page. They're talking more of a kind of abstract intellectual idea of beauty, of this kind of perfection and this sort of efficiency of how sometimes very abstract ideas can solve a problem or describe a situation or just do some kind of interesting intellectual trick in a really magnificent and awesome way.
2: Minus times minus equals plus. Can you talk me through all of that?
0: Minus times minus is plus. Is one of the first times where at school you're taught something and you're like, why is that the case? Because we understand why plus times plus must be plus, because we can, we're talking about things and like multiplication is just repeated addition. But when we've got kind of minuses, it becomes complicated. You really need to accept that that is the case, because if it's not the case, then when you start doing sums, you make loads of mistakes and it goes all wrong and that doesn't work anymore. So I think what you want, what people hope for is why is this the case that you want to come with a really good answer that it has to be like that. Well, actually, it's more of a kind of convention to make sure that the house of numbers doesn't all fall down.
2: Why do you think it is, so, Alex, when some people hear that, they just go, oh, Christ, what does that all mean? It sounds so dreadfully confusing. Or they just kind of drop out, literally. Why do you think that is? Do you think there are certain heads yeah. that have a psychology, a natural command or mastery of numbers, and the others, it just pales over and they just go see it?
0: Yeah, I, I think that the problem that math has a lot is that the way we learn math, which is we're tested quite a lot, so there's quite a lot of learning by rote. And people learn this at different speeds because it can be quite difficult. Even people who good at it might find it quite difficult. And when you're in a class where you're getting things wrong and the teacher is not saying learn this because it's interesting, but saying learn it because you have to, people start to feel, oh, I don't like this, and they start to feel a bit bad, and there's a kind of pride about being bad at math. So I think that math struggles with how we learn math, I think it's changing quite a lot that math does struggle with that. And then when I think, if you think it's all a little bit useless and a bit pointless, and then you're told something like minus times minus equals plus, then you think, Jesus, this has got nothing to do with, with, with anything. In fact, all it is is that, you know, arithmetic is amazingly useful, not even for doing math, just for living life, just for doing your tax returns. And life becomes better and more useful if we understand these things. And it just so happens that the language that we need to learn it's a bit like if you're learning French and you're told that certain words mean something. You've just got to accept it and learn it. Because people often don't see the use of maths, they just kind of reject it.
2: You pitch up a very interesting question in the book. You ask, how much sense does maths need to make? Will you tell me that?
0: Well, in one sense, how much sense does maths need to make? It needs to make total sense in the sense that maths needs to be consistent and coherent. It needs to not be self-contradictory, so it needs to make sense, with the definition of making sense being not self-contradictory. In terms of, does mass need to be understandable to the man in the street? Well, it doesn't need to be understandable to the man in the street, necessarily, because you a know, man in the street needs to be able to get into a plane and for that plane not to fly. But that person doesn't need to understand all the interesting you know, equations and calculus or fluid dynamics and all that stuff. No one needs to understand that. So in a sense, it's quite good that the math doesn't make sense to that person, but it needs to be internally consistent.
2: Well, one of the fascinating aspects I found with the book was that how you argue that every number tells a story. And you bring up an extraordinary guy called Jerry Newport. He's a retired taxi driver from Tuscan, I think it was. And he has yeah. Asperger syndrome. He has an obsession um, with prime numbers. He sees prime numbers as his friends.
0: Yeah. So when you're a high functioning savant or, um, you know, with Asperger's on the kind of far end of the spectrum, he. Struggles with a lot of stuff in life, like conversations, like relating to people, but has an amazing facility with numbers. And when he sees a number, a big number, so a number that's, say, four or five or six digits long, without even thinking about doing it, he what's called factorizes it, which is that he extracts the prime numbers that multiply to form that number. So every number you can break down into a multiplication of prime numbers like it's kind of fundamental parts like the atoms of that number and these prime numbers that when you multiply them together and this is something that it's very difficult to do and only people who are really really unbelievably good with numbers can do it and I guess what it is is that because every number has one unique breakdown into prime numbers if you see a number and you break it down you know that there will be only one. And once you've got that one, it's quite comforting to realise and sort of to do that sum. So he ended up having quite emotional connections with all these different numbers.
2: It's fascinating how people relate to the world or understand the world and whether Jerry's in a numerical relationship, other people are very instinct driven, others are so political in how they operate and, and function within the world. Can we talk about the psychology of numbers? Because yeah, some people are incredibly superstitious about numbers. They have their own lucky number. They um, have a prejudice towards minus numbers. Or even when they're looking at menus or the price of houses or whatever it is, exactly. they have a kind of a funny setup as to how they understand it all. What did your research tell you?
0: So, the reason why I introduced the book talking about Jerry Newport and his incredible emotional responses to numbers was just to say, you might think that he's extreme, but actually we're all a little bit like him. And the way that I kind of came to this conclusion is that so I used to, well, I still do, but when I started off giving talks about math and numbers, always at the end of the talk, someone would put up their hand and say, what's your favorite number? And I don't have a favorite number. And I thought that they were asking me this question just because they were somehow teasing me or trivializing what I was doing until I realized once when I said to the audience, how many people here have got a favorite number, that most of the audience did. And I thought well, it was quite surprising. I realized that I'm in a minority. But so each time I used to go in to give talks, at the beginning, I would say, just I'll do some research, how many people here have a favorite number? And it was always the majority. So I thought, Let's do a survey into favorite numbers. Just wanted people to submit what numbers were their favorites, but also to describe the reasons for having that number as a favorite. I went online, I did did my survey, and I thought, you know, I'd get a few family members and friends and their friends, maybe 100 people. In fact, I didn't get hundreds. I didn't get thousands. I got tens of thousands of people. It was 44,000 people in all who submitted numbers, in the survey. So I've got 40 odd thousand reasons why people love numbers. And it was kind of amazing. It was like the love that dare not speak its name. People who had maybe never been asked, why do you like this number? And people thinking, do you know what? I've got an amazing story. Maybe um, something important happened to them on, certain, on a certain day. So the number would be that day, or maybe it would be the street they were living in, or maybe one of them was, I think it was 42. Not because, you know, that's the answer in life, universe, and everything else, but because when they sleep, their legs make a, like a four, and their partners, their legs, form like a two. There was another person who liked 17, because that's exactly the number of minutes he likes to boil rice by. And there were so many ooh, kind of different things that you realized that, yes, what a number is supposed to be is this abstract idea, this something totally objective, an abstract idea, has the idea of quantity and order, but you can't really think about that if you're human without human stuff getting in the way because you think about a number and a number has a a shape, it has a word which affects you, and it also has some kind of, the arithmetic of the number affects you in an emotional way.
2: Do you think we can avoid numbers? I know that's possibly crazy, pitching up a question like that to a mathematician who's written enormous amount of books on numbers and maths. But do you think there's any way to navigate the world, whether it's the workplace, relationships, cultural systems, without numbers? They creep up on us, I think you argue, everywhere we go, that they, are, yeah, they almost no, I, structure I, the world, don't they?
0: I think in the modern world, it is impossible to survive without numbers. It is impossible because you would have to not use the time or be aware of the time. So you would always be late. You wouldn't be able to use money. You wouldn't be able to do any transactions. I mean, so many things we talk about, there are, there are numbers everywhere. You wouldn't really even be able to know which bus to get on. So I think we need numbers. Often people think, oh, numbers, they're difficult and they're, um, they're there to kind of confuse us. Actually, the reason why we have numbers is to make stuff easier for us because with numbers, we have a way to count. Counting is totally useful. So actually, numbers are useful and they're our friends, and I think we should sort of encourage playfulness with numbers. Often when you see numbers, they influence us in ways you might not expect. The so number 707, that was the very first Boeing jet, the 707. And why is that a great number for a jet? They say that this isn't the reason why they thought of that number, but I disagree with them. And also the reason I think why it's stuck is that people are afraid of flying. So having seven in the number, seven is a lucky number. So a way of making people less afraid of flying is to have a seven in the number of the plane. And also 707, it's totally balanced. It's almost like a wing, a fuselage and a wing. So I think subconsciously people see 707, 737, 777, and they say, oh, yeah, this perfectly balanced number, this plane is going to fly in a balanced way. You know, If you had a Boeing 706, it would be lopsided, wouldn't it? I think that subconsciously people understand those connections
2: Now you write in the book um, seen through the lens of numbers our collective behaviour is predictable and obeys simple mutually compatible mathematical laws we have spread ourselves across the globe in such a way that in every country about 30% of towns and cities have a population that begins with uh, one I thought that was extraordinary I couldn't really understand it but it's kind of freaky (laughs) isn't it (laughs) that uh, we have these kind of global patterns it's quite off putting in one way isn't it
0: well, you could say it's, you could say it's quite reassuring, because you look at starlings flying in the sky, and they're all individual, yet when you see them all together, they make these like, amazing patterns together. And humans, social behavior, we also do. So there's this very clear pattern that you tend to see wherever you get social behavior. So it's quite easy to see that say, on, the, on the Internet. Just say you have all the websites on the web the second biggest website has about half the hits as the biggest one the third biggest website has about a third of the hits of the biggest one right up and down so the hundredth biggest website has about a hundred the hits of the biggest one and you see this would be quite you mentioned to me i was talking about cities so in most countries in fact i have done it in ireland and in the uk because london is a bit big Not totally right, but most countries, you have the the biggest city, and then the second biggest city has half the population as the biggest city. The third biggest city has a third of the population as the biggest city. And right down to the tenth biggest city has a tenth of the population. It's called an inverse proportional law, or the guy, George Zipps, this um, American academic, was one of the first people to talk about it, so it's called Zipps' law. And you see this incredibly clearly it also works in language. So the is the most common word in the English language. The tenth most common word is used about a tenth of the time as the The hundredth most common word is used about one hundredth of the time as the most common word. And what's interesting, I guess, for an Irish audience is that the book that Zipf studied was Ulysses. This is before everything was computerized. It was very easy to count words and word frequencies. Some people spent about a year going through Ulysses, writing out all the different words that are in it and their frequencies. And Ulysses conforms to the mathematical pattern just amazingly well, that the words and their frequencies are beautifully inversely proportioned to each other. And this is something that James Joyce didn't write that book thinking, this is my 100th most popular word, I need to use it only 100th time as I use the word but when we talk, when people write, it's always the case. And this is just something about zip argued. he says it's almost like evolution, that it becomes most efficient to use a small number of things a lot, and a large number of things hardly at all.
2: Now, Alex, you've studied logic and maths and all of this, and you've clearly a very logical brain. How does that balance up with your gut and your intuition? And I suppose the emotional aspects of how you make decisions, because they're two very different things.
0: Yeah, I think that most decisions, well, there are lots of decisions that I would make based on logic. So... I'm not particularly superstitious, and I don't gamble because I, I don't don't do the lottery because I can see that what's the point? It's mo- most likely that I will lose, and these things run by taking money from people who, who who gamble. And some people say, "Oh yeah, but it's the fun of doing it," and that kind of gut feeling. Oh, today's my lucky day. I feel I'm going to win. Well, I I really don't feel that. I feel that when it comes to something like that, doing the lottery or putting money on a horse. There's no way that my gut is ever going to overrule my my logic. But then there are loads of other you know there are loads of other things where it's not about the numbers and the order, but it is about you know passion and emotions and things that you can't totally quantify. I think I think you need to know when to use one and when to use the other.
2: Well, why do you think we all get in such a fuss about negative numbers? And why do you think we get so bothered about negative numbers? I know there's a whole uh, chapter in the book where you discuss negative numbers and you look at hotels and how they look at lifts and everything and how people get kind of superstitious about the negative numbers. I think you say a negative number does not represent the denial of a number, but rather a compatible opposite. Talk me through that. Exactly.
0: So. When we learn numbers, we learn that there are positive numbers and negative numbers. We probably learn this about the age of five, and we're told it as if it's the most obvious thing in the world. But actually, negative numbers were only properly understood and became properly accepted a few hundred years ago. So the Romans didn't have negative numbers. The Greeks, you know, they did brilliant math. They didn't have negative numbers. Um, Negative numbers only came in when we had... Arabic numerals, which are the numbers that they actually originally come from India, but they were called Arabic numerals because they came through the sort of Arab land, then came over the Mediterranean. But because of that time, the time of the Crusades, a lot of slightly fear, people thought that things like negative numbers were kind of of the devil, really. And another reason why is that often with mathematical ideas, you can have the idea but that nothing's going to happen with that idea until there's an application. And one of the reasons why the Greeks didn't have negative numbers is that they couldn't really think of an application. Because for them, math was, you know, geometry, and you can't really have a negative triangle or a negative square. Whereas in India, the first thing that they used negative numbers for was four balance sheets. So whereas it's hard to understand what a negative triangle is, it's very easy to understand what minus 1,000 rupees is. It's the fact that you spent it you know, it's different between a debt and a credit. And so it's this idea of money being in debt is, in a sense, the original application. And so when that came through, because the idea of being in debt and there's usury and interest and, like, money lenders and et etc. et cetera, lots of people would just, just hated the whole idea of negative numbers because they had such bad associations. It was only when mathematicians realized had to have negative numbers. And also, how do you visualize negative numbers? The way that we learn them at school, we are shown a line and it's got a zero in the middle, and one side there's the arrow, and there's one, two, three, four, and then it goes on to infinity. And the other way, going left, is minus one, minus two. That's called a number line. And with a number line, you have a really obvious way of visualizing negative numbers. But the number line is only about before three, 400 years old. It actually had to be invented, and it was only really once people could see, all oh, right, I get what a negative is. It's kind of going the other way. That was very, very helpful in terms of making the negative number understood. With math, people think that it has to be that way. that um, It must have been like that, that way forever. But actually, numbers are only a few thousand years old. Zero is only about 1,000 years old, and negative numbers only a few hundred years old.
2: What about imaginary numbers? Do you think the same cultural nuances or prejudices apply to imaginary numbers or have I got that all wrong?
0: No, they totally did. So I imagine maybe only about 5% of the um, people listening will know what an imaginary number is unless you are amazingly well educated or have a really um, narrow (laughs) um, section um, dedicated mathematicians listening to you. So an imaginary number is a multiple of the square root of minus one. So in about the 1650s, some mathematicians, this thing started to crop up in the work they were doing, which was the square root of minus 1. And the thing is, what could be the square root of minus 1? Because whenever you square any number, you get a positive number. So what can you square to get a negative number, which would be the square root of a number, such as 1, to so the square root of negative 1? And at first, it was, called, it was still called absurd numbers, and people said, we'll get this funny thing, but they just sort of ignored it. And then they realized over the coming centuries that if you accept it, this thing called the square root of minus one, if you just, without thinking what it might be, just accept that it exists and treat it like it's a real number. So you can add it, you can multiply it. It will crop up in an equation, and it will really help you solve it, and you might get a good answer at the end of it. So even though in the middle of the sausage machine there's stuff going on that you don't really understand, you get a beautiful sausage at the end of it. So mathematicians then started to um, accept this as part of math, and they said, well, what should we call this? Let's just call it an imaginary number because we can only kind of imagine it. But it was doing the number a disservice because now people kind of can really imagine what they're like because they, um, they're so well understood. We should really call them something else, not imaginary numbers. Actually, usually what they're called is that when an imaginary number is used with a normal number they call complex numbers. So that's a much fairer name to call these things with a square root of minus one complex numbers. What they mean is they're like numbers, but they have a bit more texture and depth, and they allow you to do so much more. So you wouldn't be able to do any electronics, for example, without square root of minus one. You wouldn't be able to understand quantum physics without square root of minus one. And they're not saying that there is something that you could visualize or see Um, That is the square root of minus one. It's just accept this abstract idea and just accept it. And once you use it, it will be so useful that you will actually be able to um, work out things in the real world with its help.
2: It's quite profound, really, isn't it, when you think about it? I hadn't heard anything about the Scottish book, and it's something that you develop in the book. It's about a collective of mathematicians who meet up and figure things out, so to speak, roughly and very simple. It's all about logical deduction and the nature of proof. And they're very interested in the idea of proof by contradiction. Where do you stand on all of that yourself?
0: So proof by contradiction is one of the oldest ways to prove something. So you prove if something, if you show that if it's impossible for it not to be the case, then that must be the case. This is a bit like two negatives make a positive.
2: And that was sports writer, biographer and all-round numbers whiz, Alex Bellius. Alex, through the looking glass, how life reflects numbers and numbers reflects life is published by Bloomsbury and retails for just under 10 euros in paperback. Talking Books, our news of 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Do we need more transparency on the pay scales? So asked Stanford University Labour Economist, Dr. Myra Strober, in her insightful and straight-talking memoir, sharing the work, what my family and career taught me about breaking through and holding the door for others. Well, over the weekend, I had the very great pleasure of chatting with Mara, and I put it to her. Could it be argued that unequal household chores hampers a woman's success in the workplace?
1: Well, I think housework itself is probably not a major issue. I think if you're single or even if you're married without children, if your spouse or partner is not too demanding, you can get by with a minimum of housework and concentrate on your career and there's not much of a problem. But once you have children... Then the issue becomes not so much housework but childcare. And at least for the first 10 to 15 years of that child's life, there are a lot of activities and chores involved. And if you have more than one child and the childcare is not shared, then I think it can begin to affect your career unless you happen to be wealthy enough to hire someone uh, to help you.
2: You write something very curious in the book. You write, you know, as you were developing in your career, that you realise that you needed to cure yourself from your own sexism. Do you think all men and women have a degree of sexism in, built in them?
1: I think we do. And I believe we also have uh, racism, at least in the United States, built in. I think the psychologists are now calling it implicit bias And there's even a website where you can go and test your own implicit bias. I think we all grow up with these notions, and men and women have them. And, yes, I was made to cure myself of my own sexism. I got my job at the School of Education, and one of the first things I did was give a talk to the staff, which was almost 100% female. And they asked me if I shared housework with my then-husband, and I said no, and they said, why not? And I said that he is a doctor, and he is dealing every day with life and death situations, and so his work is more important than mine. And one of them stood up and said, the hell it is. I believe there's nothing more important than the work you're doing Uh, dealing with uh, gender bias and sexism throughout our society. And so I was cured of my own sexism.
2: Do you think we still label jobs male and female? I know that you write somewhere in the book, there's nothing inherently male or female about jobs, except perhaps a wet nurse. But do you think that, you know, 2016, that we look at, let's say, engineering as male and law maybe as female or whatever it is? Do you think that segregation still stands in the workplace or have we come on in any way?
1: Yes, I think we still do have those gender designations for jobs. You mentioned engineering. Engineering surely is seen in the U.S. as a male job. And I think if you ask young children to draw a picture of an engineer, well, not too young because they might not even know what it is, but once they get the idea of what an engineer does, they would draw a man. If you asked them to draw a construction worker, it would certainly be a man. If you asked them to draw a nurse, it would likely be a woman. And so I think those gender designations are still very firmly in place.
2: You have a very interesting statistic in the book where you say that when women re-enter the workplace after having children, that usually a mommy penalty uh, stands so that there is a difference of up to 20% between women who uh, don't have children and women who return to the workplace having had children. A lot of managers would be taken back by that to say that such things exist. But you think those subtle discriminatory policies actually operate and quite actively
1: well, the manager who might be surprised would be correct to be surprised if we were talking about uh, a woman coming back to a particular job and compare that salary to the man in that job. But that's not what we're doing here. You know, we're saying uh, let's take a woman who graduates from college in a certain year and let's compare her to her female classmates who have not taken time out to be a mom, and there are two factors involved here. One is that the woman coming back to work may be seeking a different kind of job than the one she left. She may, for example, be seeking one closer to her home or without the travel obligations, with a more fixed schedule, and in that case, she will pay a penalty because of her own choices, The other problem is that had she stayed in the workplace, she would probably have been promoted, and now that she comes back, she's no longer seen as a good candidate for promotion because she's seen in some sense as unreliable or uncommitted that she might leave the workplace again to have another child. And so there's a combination of factors here, one having to do with the woman's own choices and the other having to do with the choices of the people who are hiring her.
2: Now, you, Maura, had um, quite a high profile job from very early in life. You became an academic, you got promoted, um, you did very, very well. Your husband also, whom you met at university, um, your husband, Sam, he had a very demanding and stressful job as a doctor. And when you were talking about the breakup of your marriage, you said uh, your husband wanted in a wife a helpmate, not someone playing his game.
1: Yes. Um, before we married, I had an invitation from my undergraduate college to, to apply for a prestigious scholarship that would allow me to get a PhD. And I had some doubts about whether I wanted to pursue that path, But my former husband was very supportive. He suggested that I do apply and that I get a Ph.D. And I had wanted to teach in high school, and he said, well, so you'll just teach in college now. Neither one of us had any idea (laughs) what that meant, that the career for a high school teacher and a college teacher were quite different. And so he, at the beginning, was very much in favor of my having a demanding career. But then when we had children and he saw what the demands were at home, uh, he was (laughs) not wanting me to pursue a demanding career if it meant that I couldn't do 100% of the work at home because he didn't want to do any of it. And so at that point he decided that he'd made a mistake, that what he really wanted was someone who would uh, tend to the home fires and not someone who was going to have a demanding career like he had.
2: Do you think that's changed, though, in society? Do you think that relationships and marriages have changed and that we are better at negotiating, whether it's household chores or flexibilities and what we do within marriages? Do you think those type of questions people bring up before they get married nowadays?
1: Yes, I do, because people get married nowadays later. I got married at 22. I met my husband when I was 19, and neither of us had any idea of what the workplace was going to be like. Now, certainly, people who graduate from college get married much later and have time to be in the workplace, see what the issues are, have time to negotiate, (laughs) and I think they do a better job. I think they're more realistic about what they're going to face. That being said, it's still the case that if two people want to have two demanding careers, they're going to need help in negotiating those careers as well as family, children. And so one of the advantages of having children a bit later in life is that you have a bit more in the way of financial resources to get some help. So I think postponing having children makes things a bit easier. You're also a little bit further along in your career. You have a little bit more bargaining power with your employer. And so all of that helps.
2: Mari, you bring up the research of Judith Steam. She wrote an article, a very influential article, about the concept of invidious intimacy. It's something that's actually quite common, I think, in some relationships where you can have a very smart woman who marries a man who she believes to be smarter. And then you write that she spends the rest of her life feeling inferior to him. Those type of patterns, how common are they?
1: Well, I think they're common because in my class that I mentioned earlier, MBA students about to launch their careers, I always ask my women students, how they would feel about marrying a man or partnering with a man who had a less ambitious career than they. And I say that because it's not so much about money. I mean, the woman might be pursuing a career that makes a lot of money. The man might be pursuing a career that's demanding but isn't as lucrative. But I'm talking now about giving your career your full attention. So I asked the women how they would feel about marrying someone who might like to stay home with the children or take primary responsibility for the children. Almost no woman raises her hand. Very, very few want that kind of marriage. They want a marriage in which they are at least equal to their husbands in terms of ambition, and some of them do still want their husbands to be more ambitious and to earn more because they would like to not be the primary breadwinner in their family.
2: You give some uh, outstanding advice at the end of the book. You write finding the right partner is key to both career and family success. That there is no optimum time from a career perspective for a woman to have a baby because having a baby may well slow a mother's career progress for a while. And that having a demanding career and a family life with children is difficult because both require massive inputs of time and then you say something on the lines of that context is everything. Do you think women are failing to recognise the time it takes to work at everything. Do you think that's where we're going wrong, maybe?
1: Well, I think some women are better informed than others. The ones who are better informed generally have an older sister or brother who has a child, and they go to visit, and they see very clearly what the demands are. Or they might have a friend who's already had a child, and they see you know, how demanding raising a child can be. And then there are other women who really don't have such people in their lives who are a little bit clueless (laughs) about what it's going to take. But, you know, I'm not sure that what economists call perfect information is always desirable in this uh, context, because if we all knew all the demands that our decisions were going to incur, you know, maybe we would just sit home and do nothing. I think you have to take a bit of a risk. You have to say, well, I'm hopefully healthy, and I'm married to someone who cares about my career as well as his or hers, and um, I'm going to jump in, I'm going to have this child, and uh, we're going to do our best to both combine work and family. Sometimes unrealistic expectations can be changed, and it's not that you have to know everything before you take the leap.
2: Can I ask you about the Wendt case? You worked on, um, I think you were an expert witness or an expert advisor to the court. Mr. Wendt was a chief executive of G Capital and his assets were worth over 100 million. And when he went into divorce proceedings with his wife at the time, Wendy, he offered her a measly 10 million. And you advised the court, I think it was um, at Human Capital Theory that you proposed, which looked at the division of the assets because at the time you were certainly talking possibly by the media and lots of different critics for your ideas on the assets and the value of the wife's contribution to the household.
1: Yes. In the U.S., the way in which property is distributed at divorce depends on the state that you live in. Each state has a different law with regard to property distribution. And the Wents were in the state of Connecticut. And in that state... In general, assets were distributed 50-50 at divorce, but in these very high-asset cases, the judge often couldn't bring himself to grant a 50-50 division when the assets were so high, because the notion was, how could someone who had been a mere housewife and mother all these years wind up with $50 million? So I tried to argue that they had both made investments in the marriage. She had made her investments through being a wife and mother. He had made his investments by being a breadwinner. And that at the time they married, very few people had prenuptial agreements, and they certainly didn't. They had nothing when they married in terms of financial assets. And that barring some Agreement to the contrary, the assets should be distributed 50-50. In in the legal terminology, it was a rebuttable presumption that the assets should be divided 50-50. I got a lot of pushback. By the way, the court did not buy the argument that marriage was a partnership. The judge said that he looked in all the Connecticut statutes and he could not find any law that said that marriage was a partnership. But aside from that, I was criticized by feminists who thought that I should not be encouraging